With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, I want a break tonight. Oh, you want to go straight through? Yeah, let's, let's set the time. Well, let's go straight through then. Okay. And I'm going to do this one from a seated position tonight. Yeah, that's fine. No, it's fine. My hair's good. This is going to be good. First, Peter. In fact, I think I can get right in here. You're going to really get seated. First, Peter. Last week, I was busily into the ninth verse of the second chapter. We've been discussing salvation now out of the book of First Peter with particular emphasis on the fact that it'll always be now with us. And so many times we subconsciously push salvation or the experience or the presence of our God off to some dim, dark future or some dim, dark past when in fact it is for now, today. And uh, I think we look at the scriptures as sort of like a Sears and Roebuck catalog uh, and we graze through uh, knowing we couldn't possibly have everything that's spoken of there that, that, that we might be able to drum up enough currency of the kingdom that is nowadays talked of as faith to buy a little bit of stuff from God. but. We realize we have to be very careful that we can't be wasteful and, and ask for foolish things. We've got to keep our nose to the grindstone. And really, the Bible is more like a wish book than anything else. And we sort of go through and, and look at it and ooh and ah over what it speaks of, but knowing it could never be ours. This is just about the experience of the majority of God's children, not knowing that salvation is for now. It's not one day by and by when you happen to die and leave this veil of tears but it's for now and all that God has for us is for now and of course it's for later too but it is now an embryo and it gets bigger and better according to the word as we go along but most of God's children the majority that come in contact that I come in contact with are absolutely struggling through a wasteland with very little to relieve them in between with all their hopes and their goals set on heaven when I die by and by. And it's such a waste and such a shame for the kingdom of God is now. This is that day. The Bible is filled with references to in that day. 
And that day began when Jesus rose from the dead. We are in that day. And of course, the kingdom of God is in the future, but the kingdom of God is now. Jesus specifically and very plainly said, the kingdom of God is within you. And you look for outward things and expect it to come with the way that you've programmed your mind. And in fact, he said, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He was standing in the midst of them at the time, and the kingdom comes to dwell in the hearts of men and women now. And so uh, this futurist idea of one day this is going to happen then, and one day this is going to happen then, and this is for this set of people, and this is for that set of people, and this is for the others, all of that robs us of what God has for us now. And I don't propose to get into a study or a discussion of prophecy or future events or present events or any kind of time schedules or anything of that nature. But I do know this. Salvation is for now. And salvation is full and free now. We've discussed in this book some of the aspects of salvation. First of all, we saw that the house of God, the dwelling place of God, the place where God lives, is now not in a building made with stones, but it's in a building made up of living stones. The King James says lively stones, and I always, as a kid, I had a picture of molecules, you know, just jumping this lively stone. But he says it's just in the quaint language of King James, it's living stones, and we are those living stones. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone or the headstone, the capstones, uh, as it is uh, in, the, in the pyramids, the, the very top of it that cuts it off. And we spoke also of the stone that was cut out without hands, that grew and grew until it would fill the whole earth. And that is the kingdom of God. So we live and move in the kingdom of God now. And the things that God has promised us are not just for one day. True enough, they are for one day too, but they are for now. And I think we need to reprogram our thinking and reprogram our approach to the Bible. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm uh, a very ordinary person, and when I would read the Scriptures, I would already know what every verse meant. And those that I didn't know what they meant, I figured they weren't important anyway. And I would read it, and I would read it the same way every time, with the same thought every time, knowing what it meant every time. And I was just, and they'd say, well, the Bible says thus and thus. And I said, oh, well, I'd be very glad to discuss the Bible with you. I know what it means. And I would tell them, just had, had it all set down. And then when I discovered that if I would get away from what men had to say and how they divided it and interpreted it, that I had the interpreter, the writer of the book, living within me, and he would teach me himself. And lo and behold, I found a brand new book in my hands. I discovered the most amazing things that I had never noticed before. I had never paid any attention to it because I already knew what it meant. So I couldn't be taught anything, not by anybody or not by the Holy Spirit either. And salvation now has been the most arresting thing that I've seen in the past few years. Peter talks here about, in the ninth verse, the fact that we are a royal priest, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now, the Jews thought that that's what they were all along. And during the time of the Maccabees, if you want to space it between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the, what we call the New Testament, uh, 
there was a period of great nationalism in there, the time of the Maccabees. If you have access to a Catholic edition of a Bible, you will find the book of Maccabees in there. It's very interesting reading, and I recommend it to you. And this was a time of great nationalist and patriotic fervor in which the Jews were uh, joining themselves to, to one another and uh, filled with the promises that they felt they were still entitled to. Quite frankly, I, didn't, I don't think they were. And I think my point proves itself as the New Testament progresses. God gave them a covenant, and it was based on obedience. He said, do this and live. If you do this, I will do that. If you do the other, then I will do thus and thus. And they broke their covenant when they were still in the land during the time of Joshua. And then the Lord restored them. And they broke the covenant again. And they broke the covenant again, over and over again. And the promises to these physical people were always uh, uh, on keeping the covenant, which they promptly broke. And the Lord says, even though I was a husband to you, you've been an adulterous nation over and over again. They received all of the promises of God so far as their national territory was concerned. Everything that God promised the Jews, they got, particularly when it comes to the land. They got it, and we have it recorded in the book of Joshua, that God gave them all of the land of Canaan, and it lists the boundaries of all that land. The Jews are entitled to nothing else, as I see in the Scripture. Of course, that's just how I see it. So far as territory is concerned, they have had it all. They had it at the time of Joshua. Did I read, did we look in the book of Joshua? They No, they had it all. Let's read it. Let's see what the book says. I found this and I knew it came out of my skin. Let's just see what the book says. Look in the book of Joshua. Last, I know, I've read all the books with the timelines and all that stuff, too. I've read it all. But look at the book, Joshua 21. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Look at Joshua. Which one? Uh, the 21st chapter. Let's see what it says here. Look back. We'll start... Um, the 43rd verse of the 21st chapter. Let's just see what it says. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. Where did you read? Joshua 21. Chapter, 43rd verse. Yeah, Joshua 21:43. And in the 44th verse. Let's finish it on down. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers and not no one of all their enemies stood before them the Lord gave all their enemies into their hand verse 45 not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed it all came to pass I've read all the books too and yet Looky, looky here. It all came to pass. Uh, Abraham was commanded to walk on all the land, and now the walks on would be handsome and didn't walk on all the land. doesn't say that, though. It says, it doesn't say it. We assume that he didn't. But it says here that the Lord gave everything that he had promised to the Jews, 
and that they claimed it unto Joshua. Now, in the book of Chronicles, it gives the division. It gives from the river thus, 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 and I don't remember where that, uh, that reference is. I did have it marked down. However, um, there it is. I leave it up to the, the depositors to consider. But it does say that they did. They were promised the temple. They got it. Zerubbabel came back the last one of any note in the kingly line. And under Ezra and Nehemiah ahead of him and then Zerubbabel, they did rebuild the promised temple. They came back from captivity. They built it up. And they were restored back into the prominence that God had promised them. And they broke the covenant. Now, during the period of the Maccabees, the religious fervor was magnificent. They, the Jews were wild people because... They believed that they had a holy order from God. They didn't know that they had broken the covenant and that it was all over. I believe it was all over and what I see in the Word. A lot of people that are a lot smarter than me say no, so I won't press the point, but <laughs> a lot smarter than me. But anyway, they expected to have a Messiah to come who would be a political leader and who would set up rulership and make them the head of nations, as God had promised that they would be if they kept his covenant. And they expected the Jesus' coming was no surprise to them. There had been others claiming to be Messiah. They were ready for Messiah. And they expected a physical kingdom to be set up with Jerusalem, the capital of the world. And they expected to be the overcomers and to have everybody have to come to them, which was what God had promised if they kept the covenant, which they broke. And so when Jesus came, they said, What sign do you show us that we might accept you? And many of them tried to take him by force and make him a king, and Jesus would not have it. He said, The kingdom of God comes not with observation. Now, there are many who still expect the Jews to be a physical kingdom with a phys Jesus Christ to sit on a throne in the physical city of Jerusalem. And I've read, I've read the books, I've taught the books, and uh, uh, I finally have had to lay the books aside. I discovered, let me share something with you. These tapes aren't going to be for wide publication, are they? Okay. I discovered that what we are taught now as the faith once delivered to the saints, dispensationalism, was not originally taught by the church fathers. In fact, it came into prominence under a man by the name of Darby around 1820, 1830. Mr. C.I. Schofield picked it up and is responsible largely for the fact that it is to most and to almost in all intents and purposes all that is taught. If you go down to the bookstore, it's practically all you'll pick up on the bookshelves. I never knew there was anything else. I thought that this was it, and I faithfully believed Mr. Schofield. And yet I found Mr. Schofield in error in several places in his notes and outlines in the book. Nonetheless, all that's notwithstanding. But when I found out that what we are being taught is modern-day dispensationalism started with a woman who had a vision, and she told of her vision... Mr. Darby, who is the founder of the Plymouth Brethren, a very fine conservative group, uh, he began to promote this doctrine of dispensationalism, which in, in 
which really says that God acts differently to different people at different periods of time. And I thought, that's not right. That God doesn't change. He flatly says so. And I began to study the Scriptures, and I found out God doesn't act differently to people. I was taught that the church age was a period that the, the prophets did not know and they didn't foresee. And I've taught this because that's what I read in the books. And I was taught that uh, it's different now. God acts differently now. I just don't find that God acts differently. And like I say now, there are many, many fine men and women who know God and whose ministries are blessed, who will have a cat and dog fight with me in a second, but it doesn't make any difference. You know? there, so uh, you have to look for yourself. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Nonetheless, I have found out something else. I began to look back at the fathers of the church. What did Luther teach? And what did Calvin teach? And uh, what did different ones teach on down through the centuries? Uh, what about uh, the, the Nicene fathers? Uh, what did they teach? What was the orthodoxy and the, the theology that the early church fathers taught before the Dark Ages? What did John Wesley teach? Uh, what was uh, Charles Finney? What, what did he teach? And lo and behold, I discovered, though these gentlemen had some blind alleys in some of the things they taught, yet they all taught the historical view of the church. And then I came across a teaching of the book of Revelation, which had always been dog meat to me. I could care less about the book of Revelation. You know, frogs and boogers coming up out of the ocean and, you know, all manners of stuff. I came across, and all of a sudden, some pieces began to fall into place. I began to ask for some people to read behind. Hendrick, I found, was a, a fine, respected gentleman about the 30s. And I thought, well, what about today? And I discovered Ralph Woodrow. I discovered the Presbyterian backgrounds. And those Presbyterians know some stuff. I discovered a gentleman by the name of Smith and different ones. And I began to look, what does the Bible say about now? And I discovered, oh, all the things that had been just pieces for me began to fall into place. Salvation is for now. It's for the future too. And it, we, but we have it in embryo now. And Peter said, since you are that, you are a holy nation. I always thought that I got holy when I you know, got my harp and my, my cloud to sit on. And now I'm being ridiculous. But you know how I thought. Oh, I, I surely couldn't be expected to be holy now. After all, I've got to live in a, a dog-eat-dog world. And holiness is all well and good. But when your neighbor is trying to take a foot off of your property by moving his fence over, what has holiness got to do with fences with your neighbor? And, and things like this. And I discovered that holiness had to do with my father, my heavenly father, who declared himself to be holy. 
And he said, you were born of me, so you're holy too, so start acting like it. And I discovered that holiness is quite practical, quite practical indeed. It's not some high, flighty thing that, you know, uh, somebody locks himself in a cave somewhere. Uh, that's not holiness. Holiness is practical. It's down-to-life living. And then I discovered, after all those years, the Ten Commandments. And I call them the Ten Freedoms. They aren't commandments to keep me from doing things. They are. My, the limits of my safety, my liberty. And Peter talks about this. He said, you are a holy nation, a peculiar people. I know you've heard about what it means, a peculiar treasure, means pocket money. God says that we were a peculiar treasure to him. And your peculiar treasure is that you've got so much money and you set this aside for the house note and this aside for the groceries and this aside for the car and thus and thus. But this little bit over here, now that's mine. I'm going to take that apart and put it in my pocket. That's lanyard. I mean, that's for just no, nothing useful now. Nothing that I've got to spend. That's for me to lavish on myself. I just entertain myself with that. Do something that I want to do simply because it gives me pleasure. And God says, the whole universe is mine. But you are a peculiar people. You're a holy nation. You're my pocket money. This people, this people of faith, is for my own pleasure. Now, the whole universe, I run it. I see that worlds don't collide, and I see that the seasons come along with, with uh, regularity as they should, and I dust the stars off, and I keep all the atoms from piling apart and doing all themselves damage. I take care of everything, but you people that have come to me by the Holy Spirit and have trusted in me and love me because I have poured out love within you and you give back to me what I gave you in the first place. You're my pocket money. I tuck you away up here in my chest pocket, that secret pocket I have, and I get pleasure from you. You're just for me. You are a people to show forth my glory, a people to be the expression of me in the universe, the people that I swore to myself that I would have, and you are for me now. We give God pleasure now. He takes delight in his people now. And there are so many of God's children that really don't know much about God. They know that they've been born again, but they don't spend any time with their father. They don't make it their business to cultivate a friendship. And so, therefore, they don't know God. They can tell you what he's done for them and maybe give you some abstract ideas of his being or his job, you know, description, but they don't know God. And I'm discovering how little I know God. And yet God said, you're for me, a holy nation. Now, the Jews thought that they were the holy nation, and they had been. And God intended that through them that he would call out this people for his name. And it never was to be a people that were, had a certain bloodline running through their veins. It was to be a people that were immediately connected to God through Jesus Christ one-on-one. -on -one. And the blood that connected us was the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed for us. And he called this people Israel. Paul says it, the Israel of God. And then when I find out who Israel is, it's the people of faith. Paul says they are not all Israel who are called Israel. People said they are the people of God, of Abraham, who are his seed by faith. The uh, Bible says in Philippians that we are the true circumcision as opposed to the false circumcision, that which was 
to bring in the true circumcision. And within Judaism, there was always those who were the people of faith. Now God said, this is my holy nation. This is my people. And therefore, every promise of the book is mine. A lot of them were directly to the Jews temporarily, but they broke the covenant. And when they broke the covenant, they forfeited the glory. And so they they gave it up out of sheer disobedience. But all the promises were to me, and they were the carriers of it until Jesus Christ, the promised seed, would come. So now I go back to the Old Testament, and that book comes alive. It comes alive. The Scripture says, my people, I said, that's me. Because I looked in there. I heard a fellow say this. He, he, was in, uh, said he looked through there. He's from England, and he said he didn't see any promises to Englishmen. You know, he didn't see any. And he thought, no fair, no fair. Where are, where are the English? He saw a lot said about the Jews. He said a lot, you know, a lot said about the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. And, and he said, but he was kind of left with holes in his pocket until he discovered that he was immediately linked to the chosen people through Jesus Christ and that God's plan always was that his people were a people of faith, not that they had been born of a certain bloodline, but they were a people of faith. And he said, Ye are the seed of Abraham, who are the people of faith. So when it says that such and such was promised to Abraham, I say, Hey, that's me. I've got his blood running in my veins, directly from Jesus Christ. And the book has come alive to me. It's just full of the most marvelous things. And I've gobbled, well, that's for the Jews, but you know, put that away. That's for the Greeks, get rid of that. That's for the Babylonians, none of that. And it left me with just barely a handful. And I hear people that are teaching such error. For example, they teach that, that the Gospels are for the kingdom, which is to come later on. It's not now. And that... So therefore, we don't need the Gospels. That, you, know, you couldn't possibly hope to attain in any sort of statute to the Gospels. So, and of course, Revelations is not for now. You know, God forbid that we should look for Jesus now. That's for later on. And so that only leaves us with Paul. We've got the epistles, the Old Testament's for the Jews, and the first four Gospels are for the Jews. And really, the book of Revelation is for the Jews, who, according to them, is, are going to do in a so-called three and a half years what the Church of the Living God, indwelt by the Holy Ghost, was not able to do in 2,000 years up till now. It's a tall order. Nonetheless, that just leaves me with this little handful here. And I say, well, what am I doing with all the rest of that stuff? That's just a waste of time. And this is wrong. It is not so. The book is ours because we are a holy people, a people of faith. We are a royal priesthood. We stand in the place of a priest. Now, in order to be a priest, remember, you had to not only be of the tribe of Levi, you had to be born of the household of Aaron. I don't know about you, but I couldn't qualify. I'm from Mississippi. <laughs> what do I know from Aaron? <laughs> but when I became birthed into the kingdom of God by the Holy Spirit, I trace my ancestry directly by faith to Jesus. And his ancestry is in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke. Matthew traces it back to David. Luke traces it back to Adam. I am directly linked to all the promises of God through Jesus Christ. And it has become a living book. 
I discover that the New Testament didn't really begin until someplace along the end of the book of John. After all, the New Covenant did not come into effect until the sacrifice was made, until the covenant animal was killed. And that covenant sacrifice is Jesus Christ. And so therefore, I really began the New Covenant in about the last part of the book of John. But the Old Covenant becomes a lie for me because from my perspective in the New, hey, look at this. Isaiah said there will be a highway of holiness and only the redeemed will walk there. And I look at that, I say, you know, Lord, that's right. That's right, there is a highway. It says, Jesus said it was very narrow, but it was a highway and only the redeemed can walk there. Those that have been born again and walking in the Spirit of God, it's for right now. And I'm walking in that highway, that highway of holiness. God has called us all into it. And then look over in the ninth verse. He said, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's for right now, too. Yeah, First Peter. That we might proclaim the excellence of him. We are called a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a people for God's own possession, for the purpose that we might proclaim his excellencies. To be the expression of the will of God in the universe today. What a marvelous thing. The excellencies. Yes. Turn, if you will, over to Ephesians. Let's, let's have a look here. <laughs> well, when you are in Christ, whatever, it's just, it could be only be a matter of physical location would be the only difference. In Christ is in Christ, whether it's located on terra firma or in some, some place. <laughs> I mean, in Christ is in Christ. It starts right now. That's right. Look, if you will, in the book of Ephesians, in the third chapter. Mm-hmm. says, to be specific, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which, the gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Unfathomable. That's a large word. It means without depth. There is no plumbing the depth of the riches of God. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery. Now keep your finger on that word mystery. Which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. This mystery that was hidden in God since before all things were created. In order that the manifold wisdom of God, manifold means many faceted, it just keeps going on and on and on. The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. The manifold wisdom of God is not to be made one day when all of the devils are thrown into hell and when everything is made right, then the manifold wisdom of God. No, no. The manifold wisdom of God is being made right now. And this is it. 
It is made known through the church. Through the church. We are that one whom the well and the riches of the wisdom of God is being revealed in. We are God's showcase to all of creation. Through the church, and it's being made to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. Rulers and authorities, all of the demonic forces, all of the heavenly host, which the scripture says are without number, all is, are watching us. For we are God's display case, his showcase in which he reveals his wisdom. God's wisdom is the most fantastic thing. And to think that he would choose us to show it in, display his wisdom in us. You see, we think of we think of things backward. We really do. According to the scriptures, we think of things backward. For example, we are said to be reigning and ruling. And I think, oh, come on. I don't see any reigning and ruling going on. We are said to house within us the mighty God, power unspeakable. We are said to be powerful. We are said to be in charge. We are said to be the victor. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. ...over our enemies. And yet, from man's viewpoint, that is laughable. From the way that man reasons. But you see, God doesn't think like a man thinks. He says over in Numbers that I, God is not a man... He's not a man, and he doesn't think like a man. He said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways aren't your ways. And I have to constantly remind myself of that. God doesn't think like I think. I've got to change my way of thinking. And I turn, if you will, let's, let's start here. Turn, if you will, over in Revelation. Let me show you the most peculiar thing. Revelation 5. I've mentioned this before, but I just need to mention it again. Is that chapter 5? Chapter 5 mm -hmm, of Revelation John is telling what he's seeing now. This great panorama is taking place in John's center stage right in the middle of it. It's like a theater in the round, and, and he's getting to see it, and it's happening so quickly, and he's writing it down as fast as he can, and he's seeing so many strange things, and he sees boogers that would just absolutely make you crawl under the bed, but he doesn't, he's, he's just as strong as he can be, and never does he get really shook up too bad until the fifth chapter of Revelation in which there was a little book that was sealed with seven seals and nobody in all the universe was found uh, worthy to open it and John broke down and cried like a baby. He says he wept greatly. And then the angel, the, the messenger told him, he says, now just dry your eyes and blow your nose and don't get upset. The, the Lamb of God, there is somebody who is worthy. It's going to be opened. The book never says what that little book is. I have heard people say that perhaps it was the will of God, the wisdom of God, the display that God would make in his people, the church, 
whatever it is, John got upset about it when he thought that it wasn't going to be open and revealed. And then he said in the fifth verse, One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Let me take that seven horns, seven eyes, and seven spirits of God to start with. There are not seven Holy Spirits. This numbers in the book of Revelation give you ideas, not you know arithmetic, so to speak, but the sevenfold manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Seven is the number of perfection. Three is the number of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Four is the number of the world, you know, the four corners of the earth, the four, you know, all this stuff. And you put four and seven together, you emit uh, three and four together, you get seven. God, in combination with his creation, is perfection, what God wanted to do. You multiply three times four, you get twelve. God at work in the world. Twelve tribes of uh, Israel in the Old Testament, God at work in the world. Twelve apostles in the New, God at work in the world. So you see this combination of numbers here is kind of interesting. And when he says the seven spirits, it means the completeness of the ministries and manifestations of the power of God in the person of the Holy Spirit in the world. He's perfect. I mean, he is perfect. So back up here, John was told to quit crying and was told that a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, had been found worthy. Now, you and I know what lions are. We speak of power, the king of beasts, and he's pawing and roaring. And a lion is strong. That is power. I mean, don't mess with him. Don't monkey with a lion. He's a wild beast. He'll rip you to shreds. And so he turned to see this powerful being, and he saw a lamb. And I understand that the Greek is so specific there. It says, a deer fluffy little lamb. It just doesn't say, you know, an old lamb. It's a sweet cuddly, little cuddly thing, like you give a baby a stuffed toy, a dear, fluffy, gentle little lamb. And not only was it a dear, fluffy little lamb, but it had the sacrificial slash on its neck as though it had been slain for an offering on an altar by a priest. They would grab that lamb's head and hold it up and slash the neck like that so it didn't suffer. And he not only, he turned to see power and he saw weakness. And not only did he see weakness, he saw weakness that was dead. How weak can you get? And when God is going to be powerful, it looks to man like he's weak. The power of God was best demonstrated on the cross. God overcoming his enemies. God delivering to himself what he had been robbed of. The might and the power of God. And yet, Jesus dismissed his spirit and died. Power. The power of God is love. And we think of love as, you know, I mean, that's what kind of power is that? Yet, power in heaven, lions are lambs. What looks to us like weakness is actually God's power. And the church, the born again, the redeemed in all places, countries, are the demonstration of the power of God. Love your enemies. 
what kind of power is that? Let me slash them to pieces, you know, rip them apart and, and put your foot on their neck. Now that's power. Uh, run a sword. Take that sword that you're given and run them through the guts with it and just spill them out on the road. That's power. Overcome your enemies. And yet the scripture says, love your enemies, do good to them that hate you, and, and bless those that persecute you and despite you. What kind of power is that? Do you know that you cannot overcome someone? You cannot get the best of someone who repays and returns everything that you can pour out with love. You know you just cannot overcome love. It is the power in the universe. I'm not talking about this sickly, maudlin, uh, you know, kind of disgusting type of thing. I'm talking about love. Love that puts the lover second and puts the object that is loved first. And sometimes that's a rather rough thing. You cannot overcome somebody. You are the servant of the person who loves you. Jesus said, now if a Roman soldier comes along and it was the law that he could demand of any of the Jews that he carry his pack for him for a mile, he says if he comes along and wants you to carry his, you know, his stuff for a mile, carry it for two. I mean, you cannot be conquered by somebody that you refuse to allow to conquer you. If somebody wants to rob you of your coat, give them your shirt too. Nobody can steal from you if you give it to them, you have brought them under your power. They can't fight that. Now, hatred and anger and resentment, yeah, we've got to fight that. You know, hatred for hatred, anger for anger. But when you are met with genuine love, you're powerless before that. I mean, you just fizzle yourself down into a puddle. And what do you do with somebody that won't fight? Somebody that loves you. Somebody that says, well, I won't let you rob from me. I'll give it to you. I refuse to allow you to steal from me. I'll give it to you. And what do you do with a person like that? I mean, you have to finally just say, oh, they're crazy. I've got to get away from them. I can't stand it. I, I just, you bring them under your power. And we have to remember that just because it looks like God's way is the weak way is a pretty good indication that it is the way of power and of strength. And so we say, well, if I were God... Why doesn't God come down here and run those communists through? Why doesn't he just wipe them off the face of the earth and get rid of them? That isn't the way God does it. God does not annihilate his enemies, and they are his enemies, and they deserve annihilation, let's face it. Do you know that's why the devil is just used by God? The devil cannot win. And I hear so much emphasis and so much talking about the devil these days. I'm just getting so tired of it. The devil is getting all the attention and all the front line and he's a defeated enemy. God just doesn't run him off. He doesn't mash him into a paste and a powder. He just takes him and makes him serve him. Can you think of anything worse than taking the one that hates you and with calmness drawing them and them having to serve you? Wouldn't that be awful? Remember the story of Esther? Remember Mordecai, her uncle? And Mordecai had overheard a plot to destroy the king, and he told Esther, and Esther told the king, and the king's life was saved. And one night, you know, Mordecai's enemy was a Haman who hated and planned the annihilation of all the Jewish people. And so one night when the king couldn't sleep, he had the book of the records brought to him, and they came to him. He said, what was done for this man? And they said, well, he was never rewarded. So he called Haman in, and he said, Haman... What would you suggest I do for the one that the king wants to honor the most? Well, Haman thought, who could it be but me? So he said, well, I'll tell you what I'd do. 
I'd have the king's clothes put on him, and I'd put him on the back of the king's horse, and I'd parade him through the towns and the country, and I'd have the king's highest and closest official go before him and proclaim, this is the way the king rewards the one who serves him. And so the king says, you know, you're a smart fellow. That's exactly what I'm going to do. And Haman was so pleased until he found out that the one the king wanted to reward was Mordecai, his bitter enemy, the one he hated so bad. That's right. And since Haman was the highest official, guess who had to lead Mordecai dressed in the king's clothes, sitting on the king's horse, through the town claiming this is the way the king wants to reward those that serve him. God does the same thing, you see. He takes his enemy evil, which he has no part of, and which is wicked and deserves punishment and will be punishment, punished. He takes the worst that evil can do, and he makes it serve him. I tell you, when I got a hold of that, I've never known anything that has given me such rest. And it's proclaimed all through the scriptures. Everywhere you see it, the devil thought that he had Jesus. He had him nailed to the cross. He had him denounced. And he had him stripped naked, suspended between heaven and earth. He says, I have finally got the promised seed that God promised Eve. It was a hard job, but I did it. I got him on the cross. He is dying the death of an infamous sinner and a reprobate. He's being jeered at. I have got God. Hallelujah. Only to discover that the very trap he thought he had laid for God was God's plan all along. And he just allowed Satan to serve him by bringing it about. And in the death, the last enemy, the death that Satan brought to Jesus was the very doorway that through death he stepped through and brought us into eternal life. You see how God takes his enemies and he makes them his servants. And that's the same way in your life. Don't think that all of God's blessings are for one day. Don't think that because things look bad and they're getting worse, that God must be off on vacation. Believe me, stick around. Stick around. Those that God has called, He has made an ultimate promise that He will take everything and He'll turn it to our good. That's true. There is a standing that we have to do. There is a warring of a sort that we have to do. But it isn't the hand-to-hand combat that we think about warring. There is a wrestling with an enemy to do, but it's not the kind of wrestling we think about. I hear people, I've done it before. One time I was standing and I say snorting and hollering and and then telling the devil, giving him what for, and the Holy Spirit says, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm running this devil out of here. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit says, I've already done that. How can you defeat someone who's already defeated how can you be victorious over someone who's been already won the victory? All you do is stand in it. I got back out of the book of Ephesians, and I looked through that armor that we're given. And after we put on all of that armor, then we are told to stand. We aren't told to fight. We aren't told to war. We're simply told to stand. It's tiring to fight. It really is tiring. But the battle's already been won. I had a thought say, if there was, if I had been declared the winner, excuse me, here I am. I'm not the strongest person that ever lived physically. Suppose I had been declared the winner of a wrestling match with Ralph. 
And I had been in it. I had my hand raised up. I'd taken my bow and everything. I'd, I'd won. And Ralph decided to contest the decision. So here he comes across the ring at me. <sighs> Wouldn't I be foolish to meet him and begin to let him <laughs> wipe up the floor with me, you know? Wouldn't I be foolish? All I have to do is to say, I refer you to the referee. The fight has been won. I would be foolish to jump out of the ring for fear that I'd be wounded. The referee is there to see that I'm taken care of and that order is maintained. I would be equally foolish to turn around and try to throw him to the canvas. Anything I did would be foolish. All I would have to do is stand in the decision of the referee. And it's so easy. I find that a lot of what we're doing is really satisfying because it makes us feel like we're really accomplishing something. When in fact, everything's already been accomplished. That's why Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. His last one match is, you know, you don't even waste a good sweat. It's already been done. But that doesn't give me the right not to stand. The match, would I would forfeit it if I did not stand. But I could stand without fear as long as I had confidence in the referee. Well, God, our Father, is the referee. And we can have confidence in him. And we stand, and the devil comes to us. The scripture says, like a roaring lion. Now, that's power. I mean, the devil knows what power is. And he comes like a roaring lion, and he jumps out behind the bush and says, I'm going to eat you up. <laughs> and we think, oh, my goodness, and he can do it, too. Look at him. He is fierce. And the scripture says that he's seeking whom he may devour. And if I let him, he'll eat me up. But I don't have to let him. If I would turn around and fight with Ralph, he would eat me up. I mean, he'd bend me into pretzels. I couldn't get it. If I turned to run, he'd grab me by the foot, throw me back in, and just do this kind of stuff with me. But if I just stood and had said, uh, referee, uh, you better uh, see about this fellow here. He looks a little tense to me. It would all depend on the referee. And when we stand in the finished work of Jesus, and that is where the battle has been won, the finished work of Jesus, all we have to do is stand. I do a lot less talking to the devil than I used to. I discovered he likes attention. And he's getting a lot of it. There is almost as much talk about the devil, oh, God forbid, but uh, more than there is about the Lord himself among some circles. And I find this. I find that you can fight the devil that way and make a pretty fair showing, but it takes all your energy and all your attention, and you have nothing left for behold, nothing left for beholding God and contemplating the glories and the beauties of God himself. You're too busy running the devil off. You don't have time for God. You're busy, you know, warring and battling in the kingdom. When the true warrior is the one who stands in the battle that has already been won. Paul said, we are not ignorant of his devices, speaking of the devil. We're not ignorant of him. And ignorance of the fact that Jesus has won the victory already is what causes us to have to fight the devil. When we say, Lord, he sure is growling, but I know that you've won the victory. And so I just ignore him. In the name of Jesus, I stand on the finished work of Jesus. Now, I'm not ignorant of your devices, fella. Settle your papers. And his roar turns into a me as long as you stand on the finished work of Jesus. That's, 
Isn't that it? And isn't that the easiest thing? You know, and I think, I said, Lord, am I oversimplifying this? Am I seeing this? You know, because a lot of fine, fine people are battling the devil. I mean, vigorously. Working their way to heaven. Uh, Yeah, really, you know, doing a lot of it. And it's the same thing with faith. I hear more talk about faith and less reality about it. And I think, now here I am, a peon, sitting over here on a little country road with a high school education, and I'm seeing things that these great big ministries are teaching and are making lots of money on. But Lord, what is the matter here? I see something peculiar. I see people teaching faith. And I don't disagree with what they're teaching at all. But I don't see that their methods are right. All their attention is on faith and working your faith and exercising your faith and building your faith. And my spirit says, oh, no, no. Faith is not a commodity. You don't come to a meeting and get a cup or a a quart. Faith is a reaction. It's a reaction to the person of God. Faith is like is like sight. Let's use sight, my eyes. If I come into a room and it's darkened, I can't see. And suppose Betty comes in, she says, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? And I say, well, I really don't know. I've heard that it is, and I'm working on my seeing. I, I'll know it soon. I'm working on my seeing. She'd look at me and she'd say, fool, raise the window shade. Get some light in here. Seeing is a reaction to light flooding into my eye. You don't work on your seeing. You get some light in here. If you have light, you see. If you have no light, you don't see. But nothing you can do can improve on your seeing until you get light into it. Do you see what I mean? And here I see multitudes working on their seeing, working on their faith. They're exercising their faith. They're building their faith. And yet faith is a reaction to the person of Jesus Christ. It's a reaction to who God is. Why did Abraham have faith? They said, Abraham believed God. Why did he believe God? He saw who he was. He said, oh, hallelujah, God, the eternal Father. He can't lie. He said, leave. Man, I'm leaving. That's faith. He saw God. And every time you see God, faith is the natural response. So you don't need to work on your faith. You need to see God. The Scripture says God is light. You need to get light into you. You need to see God. And every time God shows you a new panorama of his person and his being, faith is the natural response. It's that you say, oh, that's God. Oh, my, I didn't know you were like that. Is that how you are? Wonderful. Well, I can relax over here. And that's faith. Faith is a reaction to the character of God. You're in a great difficulty, a great problem. And God comes and shows you. He says, look at me. Don't look at your problem. Don't worry about your faith. You're going to have all you need. All you need to do is to know me. Just see me. And you begin to get in the Scriptures. And suddenly the book begins to open up. You say, you know, Lord, you're trustworthy. You know, I really can trust you. I mean, it's impossible for you to lie. And your word said that I could trust you. I see who you are, Lord. I trust you. And that's faith. That's a, Another word for faith is confidence. The baby is standing on the porch. And you say, come to mama. And the baby has confidence in you. And so he jumps into your arms. That's faith. 
faith is the act of jumping. But he would never jump if he didn't if you'd ever dropped him. You drop him once and so much for jumping. We have confidence in God. But you can't have confidence in someone you don't know. Do you know that? You can't have confidence in somebody that you don't know. So I see that there's, it's a misplacing here. I agree with what the faith ministries are teaching, but I strongly disagree with their method of teaching it. Instead of concentrating on how to build your faith, we ought to be concentrating on seeing Jesus, revealing the person of God, His utter trustworthiness, the fact that He fills all things with Himself, the fact that He is omnipresent, that He has all wisdom. He never had to learn it, and He was never taught it. He always had it, and He got it all at one time. It was never come along bit by bit, that He is all love. He isn't just, He doesn't just love. He is love, that, that He can't lie. I mean, it's impossible for Him to lie because He is truth, that He is trustworthy. And when I see the trustworthiness of God, the natural reaction is faith. I jump into God. I say, what in my world? Why am I beating my head up against the stone? Well, this is God for crying out loud. Rest in Him. And that's faith. It's like a, it's like a woman. It's like a woman who someone comes up to you and says, I understand that you want to have children. And she says, yes, yeah, that's right. And they say, oh, I'm glad. She says, and I'm going to have them too. I'm concentrating on my conceiving. And you would say, say what? I know the way to have a baby is to conceive. And I'm, I'm, I'm working my conception. I'm exercising my conceiving. I'm thinking about it all the time. Conceive, conceive, conceive. And you say, oh, sweetheart, I want to uh, clear you up on a few things. It is true that you do have a baby through conception. But that's starting at the back door. The way to have a baby is to know your husband. Now, faith is the conception within the spirit and the mind of God. What is, if it was going to be a baby, in nine months is the baby. You know, you say, I'm believing God for whatever. I hear people all the time talking about, I'm believing God for this, I'm believing God. That's faith. Well, I don't see it right now, but I know it's, it's, it's growing. It's in me. I have conceived it. How have you conceived it? Not by concentrating on conception, but by knowing God. And that's the same term. To know is the same thing as an intimate relationship between husband and wife. To know God. And so you don't turn your attention on faith. You turn your attention on God. You say, Lord, show me yourself. Let me see you, God, the way you are. And let me see you the way that I need to see you that will enable me to automatically respond to you with faith so that I'll see the thing that I'm I'm trusting you for. Now, to me, that's faith. Faith is beholding God. And believe me, just as sure as after conception in nine months or else there's going to be a baby, beholding God produces that thing that you're resting in God for. It's automatic. It's just the way it works. So that's for now. And it's for beholding God and we feast and drink in His beauty, in His person with our eyes. And believe me, God shows you Himself here in this book in the most peculiar places, the most peculiar things you'd never think would be a vision of God. Yet you pick this book up, you say, well, here I am, Holy Ghost, once again. I want to see God. What do you have to say today, Lord? Show me God. Sometimes it's very painful to see God because we catch a look at ourselves and we would awful lot rather not see that. It's very painful because as you see God, you also behold yourself in the light of God. And the way to know God is to be obedient 
to see what he shows you every time and you'll know that next time you'll see him too. So as you read the book and you'll get on, you'll say, so-and-so baguettes, so-and-so, so-and-so baguettes. He said, good grace, I'm not going to see God in here. I'm just seeing a bunch of baguettes. Believe me, the Lord will cause the Word to come alive. You'll see God right now. The automatic response, you say, why, how dare I worry? How dare I be uptight? It's an insult to God. He can't fail. And I'm his baby. I'm his pocket treasure. I'm his, I'm his, I'm his, I'm his spending money. I'm his pocket change. I'm his mad money. <laughs> I belong to him. How dare I worry? Oh, God, forgive me. I just relax. Thank you. I stand on the finished work of Jesus. Leave me alone, devil. Go peddle your papers. I trust God. Hallelujah. I just rest. And it produces. It produces. It produces. And rather than fighting the devil and working on your faith, all you need to do is behold God. And you see Him right here in this book. He'll teach you about Himself. And you will enjoy the friendship of God in the now. You won't have to wait till you get to heaven when you die. Heaven will start right now. Because God is here. He fills all things with Himself. And where God is, that's heaven. And you will develop a friendship with God. If you're friends with somebody, you know their likes and their dislikes. You know their reaction to a probable set of circumstances. You share the intimacies. You're sitting there, you're drinking out of the same cup. That's what the word fellowship means. Suppose Mike and I were drinking a cup of hot cocoa here, and we were sharing the same cup. I'd look at Mike, and I'd swallow and grin, and he'd look at me, and he'd swallow and grin, and, and we would have to talk about the flavor of the chocolate and, and how good the sugar was and, and how warm it felt on the tongue. We'd look at each other. We'd grin. We were experiencing the same thing, and we would it would be a fellowship, and that's the way it is with us and God. We drink out of the same cup with him, and we drink with him, and, and there's some things that I don't have to tell God, and God didn't have to tell me. We are experiencing it together. Notice how many times Jesus said in the Bible that my joy might be full and that your joy might be full. And he talks about full joy. I always thought that was peculiar. What, how much more joyful can joy be? What's full joy is to half empty joy. <laughs> What's the difference? I discovered that full joy cannot be full unless it's shared. Have you ever gotten some real good news? And you could not wait to get on the telephone and call somebody and tell them. It's not nearly as exciting as it is when you share it with somebody. You'll be studying the Word and the Lord will show you something just delicious. And you cannot stand it. You've got to go get on the phone and call somebody that you know will appreciate it. Because a joy shared is a joy full. And Jesus says, your joy will be full. My joy will be full. Because we're going to share it together. So here is Mike and I sitting there drinking this cup of cocoa. We've only got one cup. It's one cup of cocoa, and we both like cocoa. Our joy is full because we're both enjoying the same thing. We're both tasting the same thing. We're both feeling it go down our throat. We're both having the pleasure of it. It's a full joy because we've shared it. And as we fellowship with Jesus, the things he shows us become full joy because it's shared with him. And it doesn't start with fighting the devil it doesn't start with um, doing the work of the kingdom. It doesn't start with working on your faith. It starts and it ends with beholding God. It has become the consuming desire of my life to know God. And it wasn't until I wanted to know Him that I discovered how ignorant I am of Him. How ignorant. I thought I knew a lot about it. And I do. 
but I don't know him. I don't know a lot of him. I know a lot about him. I read a lot of books, had a lot of ideas. But when you come right down to knowing God, I'm like, Brother Job, I want to put my hand on my mouth and say, I've already said too much. I believe I've been hush. <laughs> but it all comes in this. Seeing him who is invisible. And the world says, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. But we know differently. Because we are a holy nation. A royal priesthood. A peculiar treasure. Right now. In the here and now. Father, we thank you for your dear word. Lord, we thank you for your unspeakably adorable person. Lord, deliver us from making things hard. Lord, you said that simplicity was Jesus. I know it's easy. And it seems to be my nature to try to make it hard. Deliver us, Lord, into the simplicity of Jesus. Let us see things as they really are. Easy, restful, simple. And by their very simplicity, they are beyond the conception and scope of the natural mind. Thank you that only a spiritual mind can see the simplicity that's in Jesus. Deliver us into simplicity, Father and out of our great confusion and complication. And let our lives be a pleasure to you. And then our pleasure and your pleasure will be full. We praise and thank you for yourself. In the name of Jesus, amen.